0: You know, there's always a certain slice of the population that likes to make bold, public predictions of things in the future. There's a man named Harold Egbert Camping. Wow, a name like that. You know you're just going to go on a little bit of an odd track in life. He was born in 1921. He died in 2013. He was a former civil engineer turned false prophet, radio evangelist, and crackpot who famously predicted that Jesus would return September 6, 1994. In case you're wondering, it didn't happen. (laughs) Then I want to show you this guy. His name is Paco Rabanne. He's an internationally recognized fashion designer, uh, seller of perfume, and multi-millionaire inventor of the all-metal miniskirt. So there you go. Didn't even know that. This guy has made a ton of money selling perfume. There's his Paco Rabanne 1 million fragrance and designing really expensive women's clothing. We looked up a dress, 4556 bucks. So gentlemen, if you've got any last minute shopping to do, you might want to consider. You would think that the guy has enough to do, but he actually has a side hobby of making outlandish, bizarre predictions. In 1999, he predicted that several towns in the Gascony region of France would be destroyed by the Russian space station Mir, coming apart, falling through the atmosphere, and landing on these towns. Of course, none of it actually occurred. The Mir space station was taken apart by the Russians in 2001, and the French towns are doing just fine to this day. His prediction was completely wrong. But that didn't seem to stop Wacko Paco, as the newspapers like to call him. For good measure, Paco Robane also believes that he has been around for 78,000 years. He just keeps dying and being reborn. And I wonder if he comes back as a fashion designer every time. I don't know. He is now experiencing his final life on earth. And that's just as well because, according to him, the Antichrist is alive and well and living in London. Drinking tea, I would suppose. So, any kooky person with enough money and fame can make a prediction or a prophecy. The prophet Isaiah made a whole series of very specific predictions and prophecies about the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that we celebrate at Christmas. So what's the difference between the prophet Isaiah and Wacko Paco? Good question. That's what we're going to explore today in two amazing passages. Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. If you have your print Bibles, I encourage you to open those. It'll also be on the screen. So the first prophecy we're going to read from Isaiah is a specific prediction about the birth of the Messiah. And then the second one is a description of exactly what that Messiah is going to be. Isaiah 7, 14-16 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Very specific prophecy. Isaiah 9 and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Alright, so my first point's entitled, Isaiah's Prophecy Came True. wacko Paco, not so much. Being a prophet in the first half of the Bible was not a cushy job. The prophets often had to get right into the face of the king. And if the king was making bad decisions or if he was worshipping other gods or leading the nation astray, it was the prophet's job to get right into the face of the king and call him out on it. At one point in Israel's history, Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel hated the prophet Elijah so much that they tried to kill him. The prophet Nathan had to march into the royal throne room and confront David, Israel's most beloved king of all time. He had to get right in his face and call him on his sin. Being a prophet was dangerous work and it was unpopular work. Beyond that, the prophet carried the sacred duty of relaying exactly the message God had given them and not one word more. Deuteronomy chapter 13 is one of the passages that gives a really serious warning about being a false prophet. Listen to these words. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or a wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all of your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow. Keep and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you away from the Lord your God, commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Extremely serious warning about being a false prophet. So when it comes to our guy this morning, the, the mighty prophet Isaiah, the same rules apply to him. Now, Isaiah's prophecies in chapter 7 are very bold. The first one is absolutely astounding when we remember that Isaiah lived 740 years before Jesus was born. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That's pretty much a once-in-history event. It's extremely safe to say that virgins conceiving and giving birth to children just doesn't generally happen, unless you count the modern medical practice of in vitro fertilization. Beyond that, we know the child born will be male, and most astounding of all, humanity will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I entitled this sermon, The Grand Prediction, and this certainly qualifies. You know, God's rescue plan for the world wasn't just kind of thought up on the day that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, overshadowed Mary and she became pregnant. This was the the plan of God from ancient times. Now it would take 740 years for Isaiah's very specific prophecy to be fulfilled, but fulfilled it was. The second part of his prophecy said before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So in Isaiah's day, the prophet or the king of Judah was named Ahaz, King Ahaz. And he was desperately scared of two nations. The northern kingdom of Israel, kind of the cousins to the north in the northern kingdom, and the country of Syria. He thought both of these nations would come down, attack him, and try to take over the kingdom of Judah. And he was so freaked out, he actually attempted to make a deal with the Assyrian Empire, the evil empire of its day. The prediction of the northern kingdom of Israel being laid waste is fulfilled. 2 Kings 15, 29-30 In the time of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and took the towns of Ijon, Abel, Beth-Makah, Genoa, Kedesh, and Hatzor. He took Gilead and Galilee, including all the land of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. Then Hosea son of Elah conspired against Pekah son of Ramaliah. He attacked and assassinated him. So the very thing Ahaz was worried about, the country was attacked, the people were deported, and the king was assassinated. And then it was Syria's turn. This is fulfilled in 2 Kings 16.9. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kir and put its king Rezin to death. You know, from our vantage point in history, especially if you're a person of faith and follow Jesus, both parts of Isaiah's prophecy have come true. That was good news for Isaiah because it validated him as a true, authentic prophet of God. But it's even better news for us. We can trust the biblical records of prophecy because they have been consistently fulfilled. In fact, the accurate fulfillment of so many prophecies about Jesus is absolutely shocking. Here is just some of the predictions, the prophecies that were made about Jesus the Messiah. It was predicted that he would be a descendant of Abraham, that he would be of the tribe of Judah. He'd be of the house of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem. He would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. It was predicted that he would perform miracles, that he would cleanse the temple, that he would be rejected by the Jewish people. He would die a humiliating death in which he would be silent before his accusers. He would be mocked. His hands and feet would be pierced. He would be crucified with thieves. He would pray for his persecutors as he was dying. His side would be pierced. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Soldiers would cast dice for his clothing he would rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, and sit at the right hand of God the Father forever. Absolutely mind-boggling list. Because every specific prophecy has come true. Now what are the chances of all those prophecies all being perfectly fulfilled in one person by accident? Accident. Well, a guy named Peter Stoner actually calculated the odds. And here they are. He says, the chance that any man might have fulfilled all these prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's 1 in a 100 quadrillion. That's pretty remote. You don't want to buy that lottery ticket. That's really, really remote. And Stoner says, that number is too big for our minds to, to wrap around. He says, picture this. He says, imagine the state of Texas, if you can kind of do the borders of Texas in your mind. And then he says, get silver dollars and put them all over the state of Texas. And a hundred quadrillion would make it two feet deep of silver dollars. And then he goes, mark one silver dollar throw it in the pile, mix it up thoroughly, blindfold the guy, tell him to walk wherever he wants, but he gets one chance to pick up a silver dollar. What are the chances he would pick up the marked one? Almost impossible. And he goes, that is the same probability of chance that the prophets would have had of writing all of those prophecies and having them come true in any one man. You see, the prophets weren't writing those in their own wisdom. They were doing simply what God, the God who knows all of history from beginning to end, they were simply relaying God's words. And you might say, okay, Darren, you built a case for the incredible prophecies about Jesus. That's really interesting and fascinating. But what difference does it actually make to me and my life tomorrow? Well, I think it should actually change how we view Christmas. Christmas is a wonderful holiday, but it is buried under 1,669 years of tradition and sentimentality ever since Pope Julius I declared December 25th to be the official celebration of Jesus' birth in 350 AD. Push all of that out of the way and you find the absolute rock-solid prophecies about Jesus and his birth that were completely and accurately fulfilled in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with eggnog lattes from Starbucks, custom printed stockings, cutting down a tree, and flocking it with synthetic dust, or getting your picture with Santa at the mall, sent to your email so you can load it on Instagram. All of those are good and wonderful things, but they tend to bury the jaw-dropping miracle of all the prophecies about Jesus and his birth and their fulfillment, seven and a half centuries after God used Isaiah to utter them. This Christmas, Ocean View Community Church, take a fresh look at the grand prediction. And I think it will fill your heart with confidence and assurance of faith. The God who arranged those prophecies is the same God who has a plan for your life and my life. The God who moved the world events so at just the right time Jesus was born into our world is the same God who can deal with the challenges that you and I face in life. Well, we've looked at Isaiah 7 and the significance of it. Now we're going to look at the prophecy in Isaiah 9. And it's just as accurate in its detailed description of what Jesus as the Messiah would be like. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's reasonable in this really accurate description that Isaiah gives to say, well, when we read the Gospels, did people specifically call Jesus? These kind of terms, did did were they fulfilled? Did people recognize him in all these different ways? First, it tells us that to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. I remember being a kid growing up in church and, and hearing that. The government will be on his shoulders. And I don't think I really understood it. I kind of thought it meant like the government was weighing him down. Like it was oppressive. And I remember there was a story where they came and said, you know, Jesus and your disciples, you need to pay taxes. I thought, that seems pretty oppressive. And then when you read about Jesus' birth, King Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, they all conspired in Jesus' death. So the government basically brought death and taxes to Jesus. Yeah, that sounds pretty oppressive. So I kind of thought that's what it meant. That's actually not what that phrase means. It actually means he will bear the responsibility of governing his people. Verse 7 tells us that his government will be characterized by justice and righteousness. That's a pretty fascinating thing. Can you imagine for a second living in a country where the leadership always perfectly maintains the law? It would be heaven on earth to live in a place where no wealthy company ever got away with polluting the rivers and streams. No politician ever takes a bribe or makes a backroom deal. No lawyer ever gets a murderer off on a technicality. And no person is wrongfully convicted of a crime. That would be perfect justice all the time. Can you imagine living in a country where the leadership always does the good and loving action? That means no one in the world would ever starve, Or die of drinking contaminated water. No kid would grow up being tossed from foster home to foster home to foster home. No child would be introduced to life-destroying drugs. Sounds off the charts incredible, doesn't it? Well, that's what Jesus promises one day when he returns and sets this world right. Isaiah doesn't stop there, however. The description continues. It says, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, we kind of hear counselor and we automatically think the trained counselor with a master's degree that we go in and discuss the issues and problems in our life. That's not what it meant here. Think more like a king and his trusted advisors. In our modern day, it would be a prime minister or a president in times of crisis or war would surround themselves with the best possible advisors. You want the experts giving you the best information and opinions possible. So, wonderful counselor, was that ever said about Jesus? Did people describe him in those kind of ways? You bet. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching. But he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And then in John chapter 7, it records the reaction of the people listening to Jesus teach in the temple. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus perfectly fulfilled the description of being a wonderful counselor. Well, then Isaiah calls him mighty God. And the focus here is might or power. Well, did anyone describe or experience Jesus as powerful during his public ministry? You bet they did. Mark 1, 23, a demonstration of the incredible power that Jesus had. Just then a man in their synagogue was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure impure spirit shook the man violently, came out of him with a shriek. Incredible power. Even the demons obey him. And then we see another incredible example of Jesus' power. He had so much power, it just seemed to flow out of him. This is what happened in Luke 8. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Incredible display of Jesus' power. All right, then it calls Jesus Everlasting Father. That's really odd. How can the promised Messiah, the Son of God, be described as being the same essence as the Father? It's really confusing. Well, listen to this incredible, tense, life-or-death conversation Jesus found himself in one day. John 10 records it for us. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your lives, said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart? as his very own and sent into the world. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. And then Jesus is called, lastly by Isaiah, the Prince of Peace. And you know, as a king, Jesus predicted to preserve the peace, command peace, even create peace. But his peace doesn't mean just an absence of war. And it's not just simply harmony or equilibrium. His peace is the fullness of well-being, generously given by God. And Jesus promises it to his followers in John 14. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. So all of those prophecies, those descriptions of exactly what Jesus would be like as the Messiah, 740 years before he came, all were perfectly fulfilled in Christ. You know, we've talked a lot about prophecy today. And as a preaching pastor, whenever I preach, I kind of logically draw out the conclusion of, okay, what do we go and do now? But every once in a while, there comes along a verse that does it for me. And there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 14 that specifically tells us the value of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, 1-3 Follow the way of love. Eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries of the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, their encouraging, and their comfort. The point of God engineering things this way. The point of God establishing those prophecies through Isaiah 740 years before Jesus was born was because when we experience them on this side of history and know that they have been fulfilled, it strengthens us, it encourages us, and it gives us comfort. You know, there's Western Forest Products uh, employees and their families have been on strike for over seven months now. They think they need a little strengthening and encouraging. That it may affect you, may it affect your neighbor. I think we're meant to take Isaiah's prophecies of Christmas to heart and be that strength and encouragement to our neighbor. Almost all of us have somebody in our sphere of friends and family that's battling cancer. They need comfort, strength, and encouragement. Take these prophecies of Isaiah to heart. Explain them to them. You will be the conduit of God's strength, encouragement, and comfort for them. Lots of people battle depression and anxiety. They need to hear that these prophecies and know all of them were fulfilled in Jesus. And that the remote odds of that being accomplished by accident are so remote it's not even possible. It's only possible through the supernatural power of God they all could be fulfilled in the one person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah lived 2,760 years ago. But the prophecies, the very words of Almighty God spoken through him resonate across time all of those years to each one of us here at Ocean View Community Church this morning. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening encouraging and comfort amen don come and pray for us